We are in the book of Ephesians. So as we turn now to start uh, our, our moment, our time, and our gathering of listening to God, uh, would you open up to Ephesians? My name is Devin. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm a pastor here at the Commons LA. We are committed and convinced about the reality that Jesus, in his coming, in his living, in his teaching, in his laying down his life on the cross, in his resurrection and in his ascension back to God and sending of the Holy Spirit, has brought heaven to earth. Um, One day it will fully and finally be here and no one will be questioning it. But in the meantime, we who follow him get to press into it and live into it as a reality here and now. And so we are opening up the book of Ephesians and we've called the series The Geography of Heaven because um, some of us are familiar with scripture and so familiar with scripture that it doesn't surprise us anymore. And we read books like Ephesians and are blown away about God's plan for salvation, but we miss the bigger picture of the gospel, that God's intent is the full reunification and consummation of heaven on earth. And discipleship is, yes, being saved into uh, the presence of God and right relationship with God, but then to become one of his ambassadors here and now. And so we're looking at Ephesians, seeking to take up some fresh lenses to it. And I think we'll be blown away. Okay? So Ephesians chapter chapter 1, verse 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Father, may it be so for us this morning. We humble ourselves to lay down our presumptions and assumptions about who you are, about who we are, about what this is all about, and even in some ways being open to being surprised by you, Holy Spirit. This morning, help us to press through the tired of uh, losing an hour of sleep that we might see and sense the glory of Jesus Christ. So help us now in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you can take your seats. My family and I went to uh, Hawaii. We went to Maui. Beforehand, I had been to Kauai once before, and I thought there's no way anything would top Kauai. Um, but we have little children, and Kauai is not the greatest for little kids. It's very rough and tumble jungly. And so we just wanted beaches, so we went to Maui. And anybody been to Maui? Oh, my goodness. Um, we went in the winter, cheap flights. It was great, but turns out it's also whale season. You guys. Previously, I had been, I, my beautiful wife loves whales. The beluga whale is her favorite. So if you ever want to, you know, just funny inside joke something, uh, whales. But we have been on, that means, I'm going somewhere with that. That means that we have paid money to go on whale watching tours. Have you ever been on a whale watching tour? Have you ever been disappointed by a whale watching tour? It's really go on a boat, roll the dice, and see if something jumps out of the water. Um, Because multiple whale watching tours have ended with us seeing no whales at all. This trip to Maui, we're sitting on the beach, maybe first day, I think it was the first day, 
look up whale spouts. Whale breach, whale tails. Over the next several days, I'm not even kidding, every single time we went to the beach and paid close attention, whales were leaping, humpback whales, jumping, playing, splashing, all these things. So we're driving back from one of the beaches on the other side of the island, and we kind of go up this crest of a cliff, and we see a baby and its mom. The baby's going crazy, like every 10 seconds, jumping out of the water. And we're like, I mean, what do you do when you see an amazing sight? Driving down the road, you pull over. And so we pull over, and there's like, I think there was a sign that said, no stopping right here, but we're like, nope, baby whale, sorry. Except baby whale, it says somewhere on there in the outclaws. We get up, we climb over this like hill thing, and we're just in awe over the view of what we know is so rare and majestic. And we could see out over the water. We're probably 500 feet over the water at this point. The vista was incredible. The vista was incredible. It presented us with a viewpoint where we could maybe see the whales and see their spouts from the beach itself, and that was amazing. But then going up high, where you see the whole panorama and you're almost immersed in it, was captivating beyond anything. I'm never paying for another whale watching tour again. I'm just saving up that money and we're going to go to Maui in January and it's way better. But that's what a vista does for us. It gives us this, this ascent into the sky that we can take in the whole. Today, in verse 3 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, we're getting a vista. Not of a whale. We're getting a viewpoint of the geography of heaven. It's what, we've been, what we're talking about. It's what we're setting out. And Paul starts his letter to the churches in Ephesus with a grand vision that we got to pull over on the side of the road, lay down our assumptions about what it means and what it's saying, that we could take in the whole. Can we do that? Oh, guys, can we do that? Yes. This, is, this is better than Wales, I assure you. <laughs> Most of you are thinking, like, I need to go to Maui. But what you need to do is look right here, because this is the one who made all of that. I'm going to read it again. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. One single verse, at this pace, it's going to take us six years to go through Ephesians. <laughs> Promise you, we will not take that long, but this is so helpful for us. Remember last week, the first two verses, the introduction of Ephesians, Paul's writing to the Ephesians and he says, to the saints in Ephesus, and who are in Ephesus, and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He makes a, a, a declaration to the church that you who are in Jesus are saints. We talked last week. If you, if you weren't here last week, go back, listen to the audio, because it sets the stage for who we are as listeners. As we ascend to this viewpoint or vista, we need to remember who we are. If you are a saint, simply means a follower of Jesus, a Christian, you've been made a saint or a holy one, you have one foot here in Los Angeles. And you also have one foot in heaven in Jesus Christ. That's why we're saints. We are holy ones. 
We've been grabbed by Jesus, made his own, brought into him, and yet we're still here. As we bring that perspective into this vista, what we see is what we take part of. This isn't just a vista we look at from afar. This is something that we actually have. So, the first thing that we see is who God is. This vista is not of landscape. It's not of a city. It is a vista of God. It's, it's surprising because most letters in the New Testament start off with the writer making comments about the people. So, the Apostle Paul or Peter um, will write, I'm so grateful for you. I'm encouraged when I hear about this. I'm concerned about you if you're the Galatian church, if you're the Corinthian church. But Paul can't even contain himself. He just jumps right in to this vision of who God is, and we see it right here. Ephesians 1 verse 3, this is crazy. In the original language, verses 3 through 14 are one sentence. 202 words, longest verse in the Bible outside of the genealogies that just go on and on and on and on. Everyone's favorite day in their Bible reading plan. This one's the, the, the longest of the, of the non-genealogy texts, and verse 3 kicks it off. It's almost the preamble. Listen to what one commentator said about this chunk of scripture. He said, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is the most monstrous sentence conglomeration that I have ever found in the Greek language. That's what God does to our language. We try and describe him if we really see him and he breaks language. We're entering into mystery. And Paul writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, most of you, if you've been around church for very long, if you've interacted with scripture very long, this language doesn't mean all that much to you anymore. Blessed be the God and Father. Yeah, so like, we should bless him. He's worthy of blessing. We hear that, and we just kind of assume we know what it means, and we move on. Um, in the ESV, it's translated blessed be, and that makes it sound as though God is worthy of praise, and that is true and right, and we need to spend time focusing in on that. Countless places in the Bible tell us, hey, praise God. He's worth it. He's worthy. You should. But this passage in particular isn't saying that. Uh, the CSB actually is a different translation, translates it more literally, even though the ESV is like known for how literal it is. The CSB translates it, blessed is God. Blessed be, I don't know about you, makes me think, oh yeah, I should. We should. We look ahead and we should bless him. Blessed is? That's a statement about him. And blessed old language in the original language, it means it's something as simple as happy. So when it tells us to bless God, it's saying, make him happy, praise him, honor him. But when it says blessed is, we got something interesting on our hands. If we're honest, a bit surprising. Because I don't know about you, but what do you think God is like? What do you think God is like? Old theologian named A.W. Tozer 
said this, that the most important thing about any human being is what they think about God. I used to hate that quote. I hated it. Let me tell you why I hated it. I thought Mr. A.W. was saying, what you think about God can save you. You know, you think right thoughts, and then you're in right relationship with God. Then as I started to realize more and more who God is and came back around to that quote, I realized something astounding. I realized something astounding. He wasn't saying that what you think about God leads to you being saved. He's saying it's not right thinking that saves you, but right thinking that shapes you. It's not right thinking that saves you. It's right thinking that shapes you. We are all becoming something. And what you think about God shapes who you think you are, why you think you're here, who you think other people are, and what you think life is about. Blessed is God needs to dictate and shape how we think about God. Most of us have this latent assumption God is a really serious person. And sometimes that means he's so serious that he doesn't actually care too much about our experience or our desires, about the intimate situations that we find ourselves in. It's like a father that has such a high vision for what life is about and what is really good that our on-the-ground good is something we feel like he just doesn't care all that much about. But Paul is saying, God is joyous. God is happy. Think about that. Do you think, when you think about God, that is a happy person? So joyous, just kind of overflows. You get into his presence. Anybody know someone who's just crazy joyous all the time? I'm sorry. <laughs> you get in their presence, and it's contagious. But with God, his joy isn't just contagious. It creates. God was so joyous before creation that it inspired him to say, we need more people to get in on this. And creation is spun forth. And you and I were created so that we could see and experience the joy of God. So when Paul says, blessed is God, he's saying, God is one of zealous joy. Zealous in the sense that he is hungry and eager for more people to come in and experience that same joy. Why that's so significant is because when someone who's like better at you than something is right next to you, and then everything is going wrong around you, and they're like, we're okay. You feel the grounding of that person's joy. They know that they can get through it, that although challenges might arise, we're going to make it through in the end. We're going to be okay. We lit, like, we're surrounded by darkness in our lives. We feel it, not just around us as we read the news or see social media. We feel it inside of us. And if God 
made us. Certainly, he grieves over the brokenness of the world, but it's a kind of grieving that still has a secure joy in the end because he knows where this all is headed. So cheer up. It's all going to be okay. And you know what that does? We don't need to protect ourselves from grieving. Because his joy isn't like the awkward joy that's really a kind of surface level joy that maybe helps you get through an awkward date. Just filling the time, making jokes about things, but really it's not about joy. It's actually about nervousness. It's the kind of joy that invites you into purpose. It's the joy that Scripture talks about in Nehemiah 8, verse 10. Very common phrase, and another one that I think we misunderstand. It says, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Again, most of us read that and think the joy that God gives us is our strength. It's not what it's saying. The joy of God is your strength. You are stable and secure. He is one who knows where he is headed and invites you to participate with him in it. You are okay. We are okay. We're going to make it through. Heaven is here. New creation is coming. Jesus is with us. He has done something about death. Even death itself has been flipped inside out so that life proceeds out from it. And God wants all to know it. Blessed is God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, I wonder if we feel so weak in our faith, and I feel this and experience this too, because we perceived God to be serious and not joyous. What change might it make if we rethink the kind of person we imagine or feel deep down in our gut about who God is and how he is involved in our life. It'll change our priorities. It'll change our security. It'll change everything. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I wonder if this is who you thought God could be. This is the one that scripture and we would invite you to follow with us as we're learning. And for those of us who have many friends and coworkers and neighbors, I wonder if this is the feel that they get when they think of Jesus and the Father and the Spirit, our God that we follow. God is a God of zealous joy. And it's supposed to rattle us a bit. We're supposed to stop and say, wait a second, everything in the world tells me something very different than that. And we come to vistas like this and look out, and it's like Yosemite. You kind of come out of the tunnel, and mind-blowing vista approaches you, changes uh, your perception of what beauty can be. That's who God is. There are many things that could be said about God. That is the main thing that Paul says about God here. And as we come to vistas, these big viewpoints, it's dangerous. We realize it's dangerous, right? Like, don't get too close to the ledge. We hear about people taking selfies or playing Pokemon Go near vistas, and it doesn't end well for them. 
our humanness is a limitation when we come to big viewpoints like that. But here's the thing. This vista has the opposite warning. Don't back away from this ledge. Don't, it might be intimidating, but you need to jump in. Because a greater danger to you is to choose not to be involved with this zealously joyful God and his mission in the world. There's a book called Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell I'm reading right now. Anybody read that? Trying to get you guys to participate with me. Maybe there really are only two people in the room who have read it, and they happen to be the ones who told me about it. But, you know, <laughs> but the whole premise is 1806 in England, and there's this, this history of how magic, real magic, used to be involved in the world, and people used to know how to wield it, and there were magicians. Now, though... This is, this is what it says. There, there were magicians who didn't actually know how to do magic. They were gentlemen magicians, which is to say they had never harmed anyone by magic, nor ever done anyone the slightest good. In fact, to, their, to own the truth, not one of these magicians had ever cast the smallest spell, nor by magic caused one leaf to tremble upon a tree, made one mote of dust to alter its course, or changed a single hair upon anyone's head. But with this minor reservation, they enjoyed a reputation as some of the wisest and most magical gentlemen in Yorkshire. Magicians who don't know magic. It's absurd. And then later I hear in the book, though I'm not there yet because it's like a thousand pages long, <laughs> someone comes along who's not a theoretical magician. They don't just know ideas about magic, the history of magic. They know magic. They have know-how with magic. And they cast a spell, and all of England goes into an uproar. They're a practical magician. Here's the thing that's really gripping to me about that. How common is it in the church for us to know a lot about God? For us to know a lot about the gospel? For us to have a whole lot of information in our heads about who God is and what this world is about, and we can spew off right answers, but we have no know-how about walking with God. We have no know-how of the power of God. We have no know-how about how God intends to use us in his, cre his new creation work. We see the vista, not just so we can admire it, sit back in our chairs, and be theoretical Christians. The warning says, dive in. If you see God and you walk away from God, it's all the more difficult for you to ever come back. Dive in. We want to be practical Christians. Those who taste and see and have know-how about the Christian life. And we're willing to give anything for it because Jesus gave himself for us to have access into it. And this joyous God says, I know it's scary, but come on in. They really want in upstairs. <laughs> you know, we don't just see in the beginning, the vista of God. We don't just see God. We then see in the second half of this verse, life along the geography of heaven. 
Okay? We're going we're gonna to blow through this. There are four simple observations we're going to make about what diving into life with God is like. What happens when we take the courage to say, I am all in, nothing is off the table. If that's who you are, I'm going to dive in with you. Um, Paul continues and says, the father, I'm inserting uh, the, for the who, the pronoun. He's talking about the father. The father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That zealously joyful God, this is what he's done for you and for me. We have nothing less than the gospel, the cosmic gospel here and now for us to look at and say, do I want in on that? So God is a father that has blessed us. He has blessed us. Observation I want to make about what what will happen if you dive in, transformation is inevitable. God the Father is content on yours and my transformation. And again, we're dealing with the assumptions that we bring to Scripture. Most of us assume God wants to make us into someone we're not. We'll become a little bit more dreary, less fun. When we say we'll be more like Jesus, we mean we'll we'll be less like us. But here's the thing. I want to suggest to you that for us to cherish God as much as we should, we need to reawaken for our need for transformation. We should be eager to change. Here's why. If heaven is here on earth, if Jesus comes and says the kingdom of God is at hand, you want to know who doesn't see it and doesn't know? Those who are totally shaped by the earth. We need to be reshaped so that our sensibilities, our tastes, even our desires are refined to be able to appreciate heaven. How many of us have been to a restaurant where we're like, we get something fancy, it's so nice, and it's probably on someone else's bill if we made it in the room. And we eat it and we're like, I could tell I'm supposed to like this. Like it's a delicacy, but it's not, I don't like it. Many of you struggle to open up scripture and to spend any amount of time in prayer and to come to church on Sundays because you're like, ah, like something's off. You need transformation. Like, it's okay to acknowledge that and just say, God, keep working on me because I know I'm supposed to see something here and I don't feel it. Transformation, though, if we'll dive in, is inevitable. It's a declaration here. He has blessed us. One day you will be fully like Jesus if you're in on the program. It's assured. Why not enter into it now? Why not relinquish a little bit more of your life to say, if you need to rearrange the furniture in my home, Jesus, I will allow you to do it. I do not hold anything sacred except you. If we could participate like that, more of his blessing will enter into our life here and now. More joy will enter into our life here and now. And so as we look, as we think about imagining the Christian life, I want us to imagine that transformation is not just something that makes us more right before God or pleasing to God. It makes us more full of the joy that he has abundance of. This week, a little bit of transformation in my life. Lost my wallet. It's really just a rubber band around a few uh, credit cards that I keep in my pocket. I don't like a big wallet. Uh, and so I went around asking people, do you have my wallet? And they're like, well, what does it look like? And I'm like, well, it's actually just a rubber band around some credit cards. Um, and I'm, I lose it for a day. And I'm like, oh, Lord, 
So annoying. I don't want to need to go to the DMV. That is hell on earth, is going to the California DMV, <laughs> needing to get a new license. All the credit cards are fine. And so I go ask a couple places. I ask a couple of stores. I knew exactly the last time that I had it and can't find it. So my wife and I pray. I had our, our, some friends pray, Lord, in the next 24 hours, would you please allow this wallet to turn up? This wallet, this is really just a few credit cards, God, if you're confused about that. <laughs> and um, I park to come into the offices right over here, the parking garage that we used to meet on for church. Hallelujah, we're inside. And I ask my friend, the manager there, he's sitting in the booth, hey, so hell, you don't by chance have a wallet that's really credit cards wrapped in a rubber band, do you? <laughs> and he says, how much money would you give me? I say, uh, how much do you want? He <laughs> said, uh, $200? Sure, I'll give you $200 to not sit in the DMV to get a new driver's license. How many credit cards were in it? Four or five, maybe? Lifts up his cashier's drawer and hands it to me. So hell, how did you find this? I was walking through. I looked down. I saw it. He didn't even know that it was mine. He knows me by name. Didn't see my license in there. Put it in, the, in, his, uh, in his cashier drawer. I had prayed just shortly before that, Lord, would you let this wallet turn up 24 hours within the next 24 hours? I said, so hell, let me give you some money. I told you $200. He says, no, 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 no. Will you pray for me? So hell doesn't know Jesus. And he said, will you pray for me? I would love to pray for you. What can I pray for you? That God would bless me and help me. Can I do that for you now? Yeah. I lost my wallet. I was so annoyed. That was mainly my emotion. I wasn't afraid, nervous, any of that. I just get annoyed. I was so annoyed. And God brought about the circumstances through an unfortunate circumstance that I got to pray with someone that God would bless them and help them. We get into a conversation about Jesus afterwards. I will lose my wallet 10 times out of 10 if I know it falls into the sovereign hands of one who's working out his purposes in the world. That's what we need to be open to and imagining. All of your circumstances are in the hands of a loving father. Will you participate in the transformation to see it the way that he does? Transformation is assured. Paul moves on. He says, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. We talked about this a lot last week, so I'm not going to dive into how insane it is that the Apostle Paul says we are in Christ, but I came across something this week that I need to read to you. Um, Here it is. If you weren't here last week, I'll preface that. Otherwise, it'll be confusing. The gospel presents us with the new reality that by believing in Jesus, uh, you can be relationally, metaphysically joined with Jesus Christ. Theologically, it's called union with Christ. You are as much in Christ, if you are a follower of his, as you are sitting here right now in Los Angeles. That is a, an altogether mind-blowing reality because we think in time and space and geography, and the scriptures come and metaphysically challenge us and say, no, you are in Christ. Here and now, you have access to heaven on earth. One author said this about being in Christ. The most prominent function of the in Christ language in this passage is to indicate the reality that believers have been incorporated into Christ. The people of God are not merely loved by God or saved by God. We are brought into God. God has done something outrageous to us. 
bringing us into Christ so that we now have a completely new location on the cosmic map. God has transferred us by his spirit into a new realm, into Christ. We are no longer in the realm dominated by the fallen powers subject to their enslaving power. We are now in Christ, which becomes our fundamental identity, opening up for us an entirely new range of options for behavior, relationships, patterns of thought, and speech, and the future trajectory of our lives. Friends, you're not saved into relationship with God. That language has become so popular in our day. Christianity isn't about religion. It's about relationship. But that falls woefully, painfully short to describe the fact that we aren't just saved into relationship with God. We're saved into God. We're not God. But if God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and a joyous, loving, amazing community, we are placed into that very community, experiencing the glory of their life. You don't know what that means about life with God? Nothing is mundane. Not your cubicle, not your classroom, not your messy home, not dog sitting for friends. There's laughter in the room because that's real life. <laughs> Nothing is mundane, guys. The, cult, the world says boredom is hell. And maybe it is. But in Jesus, there is no boredom. You're with him. He has purpose for every moment of your life. So finals week rolls around. You're with him. Nothing is mundane. Everything is for Jesus. And nothing is mundane if we will walk along the geography of heaven. Third and fourth. Third, our guide is our blessing. We get into something kind of confusing. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Sounds a little bit like a distant heavenly thing for when we die, right? But as one theologian says, these blessings are spiritual, not merely because they pertain to the soul, but because they are derived from the Holy Spirit, whose presence and influence are the great blessing purchased by Christ. The greatest gift that God could give you in the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus is the Holy Spirit. So much so that he's telling his disciples who are like, no, don't go, don't go. He says, it's better for you that I go. Because if I don't go, the Holy Spirit won't be sent. One author says, Jesus inside you through the Holy Spirit is better than Jesus beside you. Our guide is our blessing, the spiritual blessings that you and I have. We need to not see as disconnected from God, but as the person of the Holy Spirit. And I want to do a little bit of sifting for us. Most of you know the Holy Spirit is a free gift given to you in Jesus. That is so true. You are sealed, saved, nothing that you can do to lose it. But being sealed with the Spirit is not the same thing as being filled with the Spirit. If we resist and grieve the Holy Spirit of God, he permits us to do so. So I simply want to invite you and I to commit ourselves 
to listening and learning and surrendering ourselves to the very presence of the one who can guide us through this with God life. Lastly, we steward Jesus' authority. If you're in Jesus, you don't just have the Holy Spirit within you. You have the authority of Jesus through you. You have the authority of Jesus through you. Paul ends this verse with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The reason this needs to be a point on its own is because you and I are immersed in a world that is materialist in nature. We think what is observable is what's real. Heaven is inobservable, but that does not make it any less real. In fact, it is more real because it will exist. So when it comes to things like Satan and demons and Holy Spirit and angels, we just imagine that it's so disconnected from this life that we don't even need to deal with it. I mentioned last week, later in Ephesians, you want to know what we're going to see? That sin actually produces openings in our being to Satan as footholds of influence for our lives. Later in Ephesians, Paul says, Do not let the sun go down on your anger and thus give a foothold to the devil. If you're in Jesus, yeah, joy, life, abundance, all of these things. But there's something else. There is a cosmic issue and battle going on in the world that we're going to read about in Ephesians that God doesn't just want you to be aware of and guarded against. Jesus actually gave us the authority to walk forward and see battle done through the church in the darkness of the world. That's why he says our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of this present darkness. So I wonder if you walk around thinking, my prayers directly affect and have authority over evil in the world and around me. Some of the most challenging things in Scripture for us are the passages where Jesus entrusts authority to humans. Um, he says, you're Peter, and on this rock I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell shall not stand against it. He says in John 20, Behold, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold the sins of any, uh, forgiveness, it is withheld. Jesus sends out the 72, not just the 12. And he says, proclaim the kingdom of God and heal the sick and cast out demons. That's, that's authority that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who defeated Satan on the cross, not just so that then all of that victory would be washed over history, but so that victory could be given to you and me. Are you willing to walk in it? Um, the evil around us is not just caused by people, vague brokenness in the world. We need to see that things like Total rebellion against God, racism in our country are so difficult to uproot, not because of their historical nature, but because of their spiritual nature. We're not going to dive all into that, how it works. You should get into discipleship relationship with someone if you want to learn how to steward that, if you want to learn how to grow in that. 
you want to learn how to participate in that. Um, but we need to, to see and begin to imagine what could it look like if I dove into life with God. Transformation is inevitable. Nothing is mundane. Our guide is our blessing. And we steward Jesus' authority. Are we willing to dive into that? That's the vista that's painted for us. And the warning is, don't back away. We want to be a church that's used of Jesus in our city. And the point of this pause is so that you and I could stand back and go, whoa, maybe I had no idea that this was God's plan for my life. That this was what God could invite us into in the midst of our city. And as we come out of the pandemic, and as we experience and see the brokenness and darkness in the world and the crisis where we thought onward and upward was the call of humanity in this secular age, and then Russia goes and invades the country and we're on the verge of world war, like, this is the invitation. Life is not out there in secular humanism. Life is here with Jesus moving forward, not focusing primarily on our vocation and occupation that's good, but receiving our vocation truly from Jesus. Are we willing to dive in? That's the ask. And I would encourage you today to pray with open hands, literally with open hands. Actually, let's just do that now. I'll invite the band up, and we're just going to do that. Um, Holy Spirit, you are here. We we praise you that you're not a God of um, obligation and joy-killing misery, that you're happy, that joy starts with you. And Holy Spirit, I pray for my friends here, for my brothers and sisters, that you would wake our imaginations up to the life we are invited into in Jesus Christ. For those of us who are trapped in an old uh, receive Jesus so that you can go to heaven when you die kind of vision of Christianity, would you stir and shake us to see that that is a part, but it is not the whole of your purposes for us. And Lord, for those of us who are holding on to visions that have constrained our imagination for who we are, for what we can do, save us from ourselves. Blow our minds with the language we are in Christ. We have been saved into the life and heartbeat of God. And everyone needs to know. So, Lord, we're, we want to make ourselves available to your Holy Spirit. You are here, you work, you move. We believe it, and in the midst of community, we want to discern it. Guided by Scripture, we want to discern it, and right here it says we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We want to take you at your word and say, Lord, would you help us to see the blessings we have? Would you help us to see the things in our lives that are withholding or resisting from you? Give us the faith to lay down the things we cling to so that we can take up the blessings and the greater good that we have in you, Lord. Lord, any of us who are crippled with anxiety, 
depression, addiction in this room. We know it's here. We experience it regularly. We pray for freedom. Anyone whose conscience is crippled by guilt and shame that is not of you but is condemnation from the devil, open their eyes to the glorious joy and compassion of Jesus. And Lord, any of us who are miserable in the station you have us in in life right now, help us to see the relational presence of Jesus Christ, that we're not alone, we are participating in your cosmic order. Teach us, Lord. Help us, Lord. We are your servants. We thank you that you've made us children. And would you teach us to love, drawing near to you in prayer, drawing near to you together. We, we confess how little we are driven to you. And would you let this morning, this place, this gathering, Ephesians 1.3, open our eyes to what we are invited into. Amen.